0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Sometimes it's good to just commit, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I would like to call your attention this morning to the book of First Timothy once again. We'll be in 1 Timothy this morning. We'll look at chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first five verses of chapter 4. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. As we examine this passage today, we need to keep in mind what Timothy is facing. He's in the city Of Ephesus, there in Asia Minor. He's leading the church there, and he's got a very serious problem on his hands. There are false teachers in the church, false teachers running amok in that congregation, carrying on in all sorts of destructive ways. And so, Paul is writing this letter chiefly out of concern for the church. He wants to bolster. Timothy. He wants to exhort Timothy to get the church in Ephesus back on track. And the way that Paul does that is by reminding Timothy, first and foremost, what the church is called to be. So we looked at last Sunday, actually. We looked at how the church of Jesus Christ, the household of God, is called to exist as a pillar and foundation for the truth. And the church does this by confessing the mystery of the faith, which Paul says the mystery of the faith centers on the person and the work and the glory of the man Christ Jesus. That's, that's our mission as the people of God. In all that we do, we are to confess Christ and Christ alone. So here in First Timothy you actually have two things. Two things that are in direct conflict with each other. On the one hand, you have the mission of the church, which is, like I said, to confess Christ. And then on the other hand, you have false teachers. And these false teachers are undermining that confession. And this conflict here, it, It reaches a fever pitch of urgency in our passage for today. The end of chapter 3, if you remember, it culminated with the confession of the mystery of godliness. And, And what this does is it makes Paul more forceful. It makes him more explicit in his condemnation of the false teachers. Because Paul knows that it is this mystery that is at stake The church stands to lose the very substance of his confession. And so Paul wants Timothy to treat this situation with the seriousness that it so deserves, which is why he writes as he does here at the beginning of chapter 4. Let's read these verses together. First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created To be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Church, this is the word of the Lord. If you've ever thought that Christianity was about always being nice and never saying anything hard, if you ever thought that Christianity was about being like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, it's a passage like this that shatters that illusion. The words, the language that Paul is using to describe the false teachers here, it is very intense language. These are highly damning words. And from the get-go, we see that this isn't, this isn't something that Paul is just making up because he wants to sound like a hardline fundamentalist. Paul isn't pulling this out of thin air. It's not just his opinion. No, Paul starts out by saying that the Holy Spirit made it clear that this is exactly what would happen the Spirit who searches the depths of God, the Spirit who knows the mind of the Lord, this Spirit clearly revealed to Paul that there were some who in later times would depart from the faith. Some in the church would become apostate. And Paul takes what the Spirit has said to him and he applies it to the situation in Ephesus. Just notice how he describes these false teachers. He talks about them being people who have devoted themselves to the teaching of demons and deceitful spirits. Just just think about that for a second. Think about what Paul is saying. The doctrines that are being peddled in Ephesus in the church, these doctrines are straight from the pit of hell. They are straight from the mind of the devil himself who we know is a liar. That's what Jesus tells us in John 8.44 that Satan is the father of lies. It's no wonder then that Paul sort of says the same thing about these false teachers. He tells us that they are liars. They are liars whose consciences are seared. The image that Paul uses there in verse 2 to describe the conscience of a false teacher is the image of cauterization. Cauterization is the medical practice of clotting live tissue by burning it with a scalding hot iron. The, the extreme heat stops the bleeding. What also ends up happening with this is is the nerves underneath the skin, the nerves get so damaged that the skin is unable to feel any pain. It's, It's almost as if that extreme heat is working as sort of an anesthesia. Paul says that's how it is with these liars. That's how it is with their consciences. The consciences of these false teachers are cauterized beyond the point of being able to feel anything at all. And this could be seen, it was clearly evidenced in their insincerity or their hypocrisy. That's the word that Paul uses in verse 2. He says these false teachers were toxically hypocritical. They were toxically hypocritical because they preached one thing and then turned right around and practiced another Let's look at what they preached, verse 3. They were forbidding marriage and requiring people to abstain from foods that Paul says God created to be received with thanksgiving. I think what we see there in in verse 3 is is one of the ways, one of the telltale signs of a false teacher. It's one of the ways you can spot a false teacher. And that's really the first point I want to make from this text today. That a surefire sign of false teaching is that it distorts God's good creation. A surefire sign of false teaching is that it distorts God's good creation. Of course, it's not the only form of false teaching out there. right? There are, there are other kinds of deceitful, demonic doctrines circulating in the world around us. But at the same time, it needs to be recognized that this is a form that false teaching will often take. And it can happen in one of two ways. There are two ways that false teachers distort God's creation. The first way this happens is that creation is worshipped instead of the creator. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 where he says that humanity, claiming to be wise, became foolish. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things. Paul tells us that this is why God has turned them over to the lusts of their own hearts. God allows them to continue in their impurity since they have exchanged the truth about him for a lie. This is our great sin. It's the great sin of humanity that we have worshipped the creation instead of the creator. And if you follow the logic of Paul's argument in Romans 1, you see that when this happens, when creation is worshipped and idolized, people end up following after their most carnal impulses. False teaching is often accompanied by off-the-rails hedonism. This primarily takes three forms. It takes the form of the worship of money, the worship of sex, and the worship of power. Money, sex, and power. We see the worship of these three things everywhere in the world around us. When you look at the Kansas City skyline, have you ever noticed that the biggest, most impressive buildings in our city are financial institutions? Now, there's nothing wrong with financial institutions per se. Money is not inherently sinful, but the worship of money most certainly is. This is what Paul will say later in First Timothy, that the love of money, the, the worship of money is the root of all evil. And so I can't help but think that when an entire city lives and moves and has its being underneath the shadow of these massively powerful and at times corrupt financial institutions that maybe, just maybe that means that there are some people here who worship money. Or what about sex? Our culture today worships at the altar of the false god of sexual pleasure. This is why our society organizes itself so that consequence-free sex is normal. If you want to sleep around, here are some contraceptives. And if those contraceptives happen to fail you, well, you can always get an abortion. And if, if you're racked with guilt over having an abortion, well, I know of a great dispensary. You can get everything you need to numb your guilty conscience so that you can keep sleeping around and doing whatever you want. Friends, that is the moral and social infrastructure of a culture that worships sexual hedonism. Again, just like money, sex is not evil. In the right context, in the proper context, human sexuality is a good thing. It's a gift. It was God's idea. But when the good gift of sex becomes the false god of sex, it destroys everything. And then there's power. History shows that there is no limit to what people will do to have power over others. Political ideologies have been developed. Billions of dollars have been spent. Costly wars have been fought and lives have been violently taken, all for a lust of power. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us. We were made to exercise dominion. When God created Adam and Eve, He gave them agency and power to rule over the earth. And listen, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. But just like with everything else in a sinful world, that good thing has become warped and perverted. Our good dominion, when it is worshiped instead of God, it gets turned into something harmful and bloody. And so it is that a thing that was meant to make the world better actually ends up making the world worse. But then again, that's what happens when we worship created things instead of the creator. We take something that was supposed to be good, that was intended by God to be good, and we turn it upside down and inside out, and it becomes something evil. Because this is so often the case, it has led many people to embrace the second distortion of created things. The second way that false teaching distorts God's good creation is by despising it. If worshiping the creation has been the great temptation of the world, then despising creation has been the great temptation of the church. Down through the ages, believers have looked at what the world is doing. They've looked at all the the hedonism and the idolatry and the excess, and and we've concluded that's not for us, right? That's that's not how, how God wants us to live. We need to avoid that. But what we've ended up doing is we've ended up embracing an error of a different sort where we treat the created world like it's something icky and vulgar. Something that that needs to be avoided or escaped. And if you don't think this is a very real tendency in the church, well, just look at our history. I mean, is it any wonder that for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has required its priests, its nuns, its monks to remain celibate? This is because there has been this this picture in the imagination of Christendom that says that that people who don't get married are more holy than people who do get married. People who withdraw from the world. People who shun the goods of human society. People who recoil from the gifts of creation. These are the people who, who really know what it means to be devoted to God. So we've ended up painting this picture of a saint is someone who walks around like an emaciated, lifeless robot, someone who who never smiles, who never laughs, who never seems to enjoy anything, always serious, always stoic, always high-minded. Friends, that is not the Christian life. It's actually a distortion of the Christian life because it's unchristian to act as if devotion to God requires you to abstain from the blessings that God himself has given so generously in his creation. And yet that's the exact thing that the false teachers in Ephesus were requiring. That's the doctrine they were hanging their hat on. They were peddling this. Holy, holy people don't get married. Oh, and here's this list of food. Yeah, holy people stay away from those foods. And you know how holy someone is by the level to which they despise these created realities. For instance, this this false doctrine is why Paul says in verse 2, these people are known for their hypocrisy. Because if you look at the two ways that false teaching distorts creation, the false teachers in Ephesus were practicing the first one while preaching the second. They were publicly teaching that is, it's, it's holy to abstain from the, the good things of creation. It's holy to despise created realities. But when it came to what they were actually doing and practicing behind the scenes, it was a completely different story. They were incredibly indulgent. You remember a few weeks back when I was preaching on the office of overseer, I mentioned that the Ephesian false teachers were promiscuous. They liked to party and sleep around. This is what we see in 2 Timothy 3.6, where Paul says that it is these same people, these same false teachers who creep into households and prey on weak women. So just keep that in mind as we look at this text today. And keep it in mind as you look at verse 3 in particular. These same liars, these these false teachers whose consciences were seared, these are predators who are capturing weak women. And verse 3 tells us that they have the audacity to prohibit marriage, to forbid a husband and wife from getting married. Friends, there are few things in this world that are uglier than religious hypocrisy. The list of things uglier than religious hypocrisy is a very short list. And our culture has picked up on this. If, If you were to walk down the street and pull a random person aside and tell them that you are a sexual hedonist and you sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, they wouldn't bat an eye at that. They'd probably just shrug at you like, okay. You know what else they wouldn't care about? Is if you and I went out into the desert to practice our faith in complete and utter solitude. Like if you told them, this is the last time I'm ever going to set foot in human society. From now on, I'm going to go out into the wilderness and I'm going to become a hermit. They'd probably say, if that's what you want to do, more power to you. But you know what? The moment that our culture smells hypocrisy on us is the moment that they sit up and pay attention. The moment that they detect that we are preaching one thing and yet practicing another is the moment that we get very noticed. This is why we must constantly be putting to death hypocrisy. Because if we're going to display and declare the gospel of God in this generation, it must be true of us that that we are thoroughly repenting of hypocrisy whenever and wherever we see it in ourselves and whenever and wherever we see it in the life of this congregation. We want to be the kind of people that Paul mentions in verse 3 where he talks about those who believe and know the truth. This makes me think of Psalm 51.6, where David says that God delights to see the truth in the inward being of his people. What David is, is talking about there actually relates to a major point of contrast in this passage we're looking at. And the contrast is this. On the one hand, you have those false teachers who are hypocritically distorting the created order. But then on the other hand, you have true believers those who believe and know the truth. And Paul points out that it is these true believers who receive with thanksgiving the very foods that were being forbidden in Ephesus. That brings us to the second thing I want you to see today. I want you to see that sanctified enjoyment of created things is marked by thanksgiving to the creator. Sanctified enjoyment of created things is marked by thanksgiving to the creator. Look look back at verse 4 with me. Paul says in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And then in verse 5, Paul tells us why this is, because it is made holy, created things are made holy by the word of God and by prayer. So as a way of, of counteracting the idea that that marriage and certain foods are somehow unholy, what Paul does is he takes Timothy back to the, the very beginning. He takes him all the way back to Genesis chapter one. The opening chapter of the Bible where it says that when God created everything and he saw it all, it says that, that he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. This is something that's confirmed in Acts chapter 10 as well. Where Peter has a vision of, of a, a, a stampede of animals resting upon a sheet that is being let down from heaven. And as this sheet comes down, and and as Peter looks at it, God tells him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. But there was a problem with this for Peter, right? Because Peter has observed the customs of Judaism his entire life, so he, he actually objects to what God is proposing. Peter says, no, Lord, nothing uncommon, or nothing common, rather, has ever entered my mouth. He thinks that God is testing him. And yet, even as Peter stridently objects, God continues to affirm the goodness of creation. He tells Peter, do not call common what I have called clean. This is why Paul, as a good Jewish man, is able to say what he says in verse 5, that everything created by God is made holy by the word of God. It's because God affirms his creation. He looks upon all that he has made and he says, it is very good. That is the final word on the subject. The created order is sacred. There is not one square inch of this world that is meant to be despised or rejected by us as believers. Another reason we know that it is true that God affirms creation Is the incarnation of his son. Last week we heard from chapter 3, verse 16, about how Jesus was manifested in the flesh. This is something that the Gospel of John also tells us that the eternal word, who was with God in the beginning and who himself is God, he did something that the church has been trying to understand for thousands of years. That eternal word became flesh. And he dwelled among us. He he took unto himself a physical human body. This means that the eternal word has skin and bones and ligaments and blood. He has a nervous system and taste buds and reproductive organs. There are neurons firing in his brain. One day when you you see Jesus, you will look down at his feet and you will see that he has toenails. You will lift up his arm and you will see he has armpit hair. The one through whom heaven and earth were made, he has a belly button. I mean, what do you think all of that means? Would you look at all of that and conclude, God doesn't like creation. He thinks it's icky. He's grossed out by it. No, you would would look at that and you would conclude, man, God must really love his creation. He must really delight in it. I mean, for him to to come down here and set foot on the soil of our planet, that is a creation-affirming event. That means creation is very good. Friends, in both of these things, in the, the creation account, And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we see that God is not embarrassed of the physical world. He's not indifferent about it. He doesn't see it from a standpoint of detached ambivalence. No, he loves his creation. He absolutely delights in it. It it brings his heart great joy to look upon all that he has made and declare over it the final word. It is very good. And Paul says it's by this word that all created things are made holy. Created things are also made holy by prayer. That's the other thing Paul tells us in verse 5. Now what I think Paul has in mind here specifically is the prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of thanksgiving. Like, like when we experience the pleasures and the delights of this created world, our experience of that is sanctified as we breathe out a prayer of gratitude to the God who gives us those experiences. Because really what you're doing when you pray the prayer of thanksgiving is you're recognizing that this enjoyment that I am experiencing in this moment, this enjoyment is derived from the ultimate source of enjoyment. So we see in Psalm chapter 16 that that's that's who God is. He is the ultimate source of all enjoyment. The psalmist erupts in an outpouring of praise and he says to the Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when we experience the pleasure of created things, what they're doing is is they're actually pointing us beyond themselves to the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate satisfaction that is found in the presence of our living and true God. It's like looking at a stream of water. And you know that, that stream is wonderful. It's lovely. But at the same time, you know that if you follow that stream far enough, it's going to lead you to the ocean. It's like looking up at the clouds, and you see the beams of light breaking through, and you're like, wow, look at those beams. That's stunning. But at the same time, you know that those beams are just indicative of something greater that is past those clouds. There's there's something beyond them, and the, the beams are just a whisper of the radiance of that greater thing. And the prayer of thanksgiving is the language of a heart that recognizes this. It's the language of a heart that knows that every good thing is but a whisper of a greater reality. And it reminds us that all the wonderful things in this world that we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch, all of it came from somewhere. It would be better to say that it came from someone. There's this song by Andrew Peterson that for me is, is probably one of the most moving songs I've ever heard. It's the very last track from his album, Light for the Lost Boy. And the lyrics of the song go like this. At one point in the song, Peterson sings these words. Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds. Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see that spring has sprung and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Paul tells us that too. Follow that impulse that Peterson is talking about, to to follow by faith in Christ, the longing to give thanks to the giver of these gifts of life that we are experiencing every day. That's how we rightly live in this world. And the prayer of thanksgiving is how we agree with God that despite all that is wrong in this world, despite the mess that we have made of it, creation has not ceased to magnify him as the fountain of all goodness, all pleasure, and all satisfaction. And yes, that is, that is the God you worship this morning. It's the God of whom Psalm chapter 36 says that each day the children of man feast on the abundance of his house. We drink from the river of his delights. For with him is the fountain of life. And in his light, do we see light? So with all of that said, I want to end this sermon this morning by giving you three pastoral charges. Three pastoral charges. The, uh, the, the catchphrase of the nihilist has been said a million times, and you've, you've probably heard it more times than you can count. It goes, eat... Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. One day your body's going to go into the ground, and that's going to be it. There's nothing after that. So you might as well wring everything out of life that you can get. But this past week, I was listening to one Bible teacher talk about this passage here in 1 Timothy 4, and this Bible teacher put a spin on this nihilistic catchphrase. He said that the point that Paul is making in this passage is he's telling us to eat, drink, and get married for tomorrow we live. And so with these three pastoral charges, that's that's what I'm going to exhort you to do. Eat, drink, and get married for tomorrow we live. So let's start with eat and drink. Emmaus, I want to exhort you to feast often with the people you love. Feast often with the people you love. I challenge you this week to gather with others around a table. Spread that table with the best food that you can make. And as the sight and the the smell of that food wafts over the room and it engages your senses, take a moment. Lift your heart to God with a prayer of thanksgiving. Or as our parents used to tell us, say grace. Say grace, pour out words of of gratitude and, and praise for the kind providence of God that has placed the food on that table for you. Make it a holy moment. And then take that holy moment to the next level by enjoying that meal to the fullest. Place that food in your mouth and let the flavors of it just wash over your taste buds. Delight yourself in the tastes. Rejoice over each texture. Fill your belly until you cannot possibly take another bite. And don't worry, if you're worshiping with every bite, it's not gluttony. And then once you've eaten, I'm going to challenge you to do something else. Let the dishes on the counter Dirty dishes and the kitchen sink, let them all wait. Let them wait. Instead of busying yourself with cleaning up, sit there for a while at the table and talk with those who are there with you. Linger at that table indefinitely. Speak about life, speak about your day, talk about your joys and your struggles. Tell stories and jokes. Make each other laugh. Look someone in the eye and tell them how much they matter to you. Just be present with those you love. A few weeks ago, our family watched the Disney Pixar movie Ratatouille. And the main character of the movie is a rat, believe it or not, named Remy. Remy loves to cook. And he ends up being the unlikely culinary mastermind at a famous restaurant in Paris. But there's a foil in the movie. Just like 99.9999% of Disney movies, the foil is the parents. The, The parents who just don't understand their kids and their dreams. This is Remy's own father who actually has his own philosophy on food. Remy's father says throughout the movie over and over again in a very curmudgeonly way, he says, food is fuel. That's his philosophy. Food is fuel. It doesn't matter what it is that you eat. It doesn't matter how it tastes, just as long as it helps you survive. But Remy knows that that can't be right. And as Christians, we know it too. Food is not just fuel, because we are not mere machines. Food is is not the stuff that we shove in our face so that we can get on doing the things that we were made to do. No, the, the enjoyment of eating food is itself one of the things that we were made to do. We were made to feast. We were made for the table. Just listen to what Justin Early says in his book, The Common Rule. He says, the fact that we were made to eat says volumes about who we are and who God is. We are not just hungry bodies nor machines that simply need fuel. We are hungry souls. We are people who crave the company and the delights of the table." Our need for food says something profound about us. It says that we need God, we need others, and we need the created world. And listen, friends, God could have met that need by making our sustenance bland and unappealing. He could have made it to where we are nourished by gray sludge that you squeeze out of a toothpaste tube. He could have made it to where we take a blue pill every 365 days that holds us over until next year. But that's not what God did. That's not what he chose to do. Instead, he chose to make food something that can delight us to no end. He chose to make it something that can knock our socks off, that can blow us away. He made food to be something that not just fills our stomachs, but also fills our souls and by doing that he's saying come to the table come and, and feast with those you love speaking of love here's the second charge i want to mention get married celebrate the union of husband and wife as a fundamental gift to the world hebrews 13:4 tells us that marriage is to be held in honor by all. Marriage should be honored because marriage is a gift. It's a gift that God has, has given us that should be prized and valued and esteemed by every Christian, regardless of their marital status. Let's listen to what Ray Ortland says. He tells us that marriage is to be honored and lifted up And protected among all believers. Not only among married believers. It is the God-defined institution of marriage. Not only my own personal marriage that I am to esteem. Every believer has something personally wonderful at stake. In the sacred reality of marriage. All churches have a gospel-motivated obligation. Actively to teach and honor and promote marriage. If we love the preaching of the gospel from pulpits, then we will love the display of the gospel in marriages. Churches must not be neutral or casual about what so rejoices the heart of God. As the sexual revolution destroys lives, as it erodes cultures, It is the church's delight in the sacred gift of marriage that will shine as a beacon of holiness in a dark world. This is why the church should encourage young people to get married, start a family, start a life together, give yourself to a godly spouse as long as you both shall live. This is why Christians who are already married should do everything they can to pursue wholeness and health with their spouse. I want to say to the married couples in the room it is good and holy for you to have sex with your spouse on a regular basis. That's a sermon application you're not going to forget. For those of us who are single, I'll say this pray for the married couples in your life. Pray for the married couples in your community group. Ask God to bless them, to bless their union, to protect them from the onslaughts of the evil one who loves nothing more than to see Christian marriages destroyed. And if you can, maybe even take it a step further. Maybe you and another single person from the church can watch the kids so that mom and dad can go out for dinner or for coffee. Listen, as as a single Christian, You have a unique gift to offer. You have a unique capacity to bless the married people around you. I say all this because here's the bottom line. Marriage is the crowning jewel of the created order. And God made the world when he filled it and and ordered it with all sorts of beautiful things. And when he set down, man, in the middle of all of that there was still one thing that needed to be done. There was still one thing that to that point still needed to be made right. It is not good that man is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So like a doting father of the bride, God God brings Eve, He, he presents her to her husband. And creation reaches a sense of completion and finality. It it reaches its pinnacle when a husband and a wife are together in a garden. And they are naked and unashamed. What a gift. What a profound blessing that God has given to the world. And believe it or not, this, this profound blessing of marriage is a sign of something even more profound. It's a sign of even greater things to come, as as great as it is. I mean, here here we've been talking about meals and marriage, but, but our current experiences of these things are only the beginning. They point us toward a greater future reality that awaits all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the final pastoral charge I want to give. Remember that tomorrow we live Tomorrow we live. So prepare for your bright future with Christ by brightening today with a meal of thanksgiving. In a moment, we're going to come to the communion table. We're going to receive a meal that has been traditionally referred to by the church as the Eucharist. Maybe maybe that word is new to you. Maybe you've never heard the word Eucharist. Or maybe you've heard it you've been wondering what it means. It simply means thanksgiving. It's a word that describes how this meal is to be received. It's, it's to be received with a posture of holy, reverent gratitude to God. And this is the case because this is a special meal. It's a, it's a meal with a unique and special meaning. On the night that he was betrayed... Jesus told his disciples that the bread sitting on the table in front of them, that bread meant something. It meant that his body was broken for sinners like us. He also told his disciples that the cup meant something too. It meant that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And after Jesus explained these things, like after he he talked about the bread and the cup, he turned to his disciples and he said this, I will not receive this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we share this meal together as the church, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Because here's the thing, when the Lord comes, when he returns, and when the reign of his kingdom is fully realized on this earth, at that time, we will feast like no one has ever feasted before. The book of Revelation describes this. Describes our future in Christ as being a marriage banquet. Jesus is there at the banquet. He's the groom. And the church is there. We're the bride, decked out in our finest wedding garments. And in Revelation chapter 19, it tells us that on that day, we will rejoice and exult and give God the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those, it says who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know that you're invited? Do you have a blessed assurance that you will one day feast with the Lamb? If you cannot say yes to that question, we would ask you not to come to the table today. Instead, we want to plead with you if you know you're not a Christian, we want to plead with you, come to the lamb. Trust in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe on his name and call upon him and he will save you from your sin. He will give you a bright future. We want you to do that this morning because we so badly want you to be there at that wedding feast with us on the final day. For those of us who do know they're invited to that feast, In a moment, I'll ask you to come down the aisle on this side of the room. We'll begin in the front row, and we'll move to the back of the room. You just come down this aisle, come around the front in a single file line. It'll just help with traffic flow. You can come and get your elements here at the table. Then after we've received communion together, we'll do what we always do. We'll sing a final song, and then we'll be dismissed. But before we come to the table, let's lift our hearts to God and thank him. Would you pray a prayer of thanksgiving with me? Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. Grant that this moment where we have breath in our lungs, where we have the gift of of blood pumping through our veins, let this be a moment that is marked by a reverent and holy gratitude. God, would you, would you brighten this present moment by overwhelming our hearts with gratitude as we come to the table that you have so graciously set? Let it remind us that, that you're the father of lights, that you give every good and perfect gift, that you are the creator who has filled the whole earth with your glory, and then you called it good. And you use physical elements to remind us of that. But Lord, let it remind us also that when our sin had plunged this world into ruin, you initiated a plan to make all things new. God, we know that the end result of that plan will be us with Christ in a world that is better than we can imagine. So, Lord, we give thanks to you as we await that day. Help us this week to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze Casey, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze Casey, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.